and going through chapter 8, verse 3. We're actually in the second half of a sermon. Two weeks ago, we talked about the first half of this sermon called the Temple Sermon. And we stopped at verse 19, and we're really picking up in the second half of the sermon. And you'll notice the first word in verse 20, therefore. And so whenever you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what is it there for? And uh, Jeremiah is going to draw some conclusions here. And they're based on the first half of the sermon, but we're going to read together this second half, verse 20 through chapter 8, verse 3. If you would stand together and we'll read God's word. <clears throat> Jeremiah seven twenty. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them according, according concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by name, my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be no more to be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they, for they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of his people, of this people, will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the prophets, the bones of the priests, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tomb, and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after in which they have sought and worshipped, and they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. 
Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on this word. This is a um, heavy second half of this sermon, so let's pray together that we might hear what God wants us to hear today. Heavenly Father, we recognize that Jeremiah spoke these words to a people 2,600 years ago. And there are applications to those people that wouldn't be applicable to us. But your word is living and active and is eternal and sometimes tough. But we have tough hearts. We have hearts of stone. And we need to hear and heed your word today. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make something happen that simply my sermon cannot deliver that words on a page cannot produce. But you would produce it in our souls, a life transformation, however it may be needed for each one here. In Jesus' name, amen. I recently finished a book by David McCullough on the Johnstown flood of 1889. Johnstown was a small town in the mountains of Pennsylvania, about 60 miles east of Pittsburgh. And the town sat down in a valley, a river valley. And it sat at the bottom of a mountain and at a fork of two rivers, the Conma, I think is how you say it, the Conma River and Stony Creek. Fourteen miles up the river valley was called the South Fork Dam. It was a man-made earthen dam in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and it helped form the Conma Lake. And the lake was a place where wealthy people like uh, Andrew Carnegie would come in the summers from Pittsburgh. The lake was massive, 450 acres 70 feet deep in places, and estimate the estimates were it held back 20 million tons of water. In 1881, there was a scare that the dam was beginning to crumble, and so there were some engineers and people from Johnstown who went up to inspect the dam, and they inspected and submitted this following report to the newspaper They said, several of our citizens who have recently examined the dam state it as their opinion that the embankment is perfectly safe. Perfectly safe to stand all the pressure that can be brought to bear on it. We do not consider there is much cause for alarm as even in the event of the dam breaking, there is plenty of room for the water to spread out before before reaching Johnstown and no damage would result. 
Later, one of the leading citizens of Johnstown was asked how far he thought the river would rise if the dam did break, and his answer was about two feet. On the morning of May 31st, 19 or 1889, the people of Johnstown woke up to a cold, driving rain. Since it was at a low part in the valley, a typical places that were the lowest parts began to flood. It's not surprisingly for Johnstown. But what they didn't realize was how rapid the river or the, the rivers that were upstream of the lake were rising and how quickly the lake was filling up 14 miles upstream. And sometime after 3 o'clock, the perfectly safe South Fork Dam gave way. One witness said this, Oh, it seemed to me as if all the destructive elements of the Creator had been turned loose at once in that awful current of water. When the dam let go, the lake seemed to leap into the valley like a living thing. McCullough writes this, Most of the people of Johnstown never saw the water coming. They only heard it. The height of the wall of water was at least 36 feet at the center. Because of the speed it had been building as it plunged through the valley, the water struck Johnstown harder than anything it had encountered in its 14-mile course. The drowning and devastation of the city took about 10 minutes. The estimated dead were over 2,200 people. The people of Johnstown lived in the shadow of a massive destructive force. And they either couldn't see it, or in most cases they refused to see how powerful what they were living in the shadow of, and how little danger they considered themselves in. In our text today, it's the year 70 or 600 B.C., and it's not the people of Johnstown, but it's the people of Jerusalem who are living in the shadow and the direct path of massive destruction. Yet, just like the people of Johnstown, the people of Jerusalem, they refuse to see it. They've been warned and they just, for some reason, they can't or they refuse to see the situation they're living in. But Jeremiah saw it coming. As we said from, and you might remember from chapter 1 and verse 13, in Jeremiah's call, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I responded, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of Israel. Jeremiah sees this boiling pot that has spilled over and it's running with massive destructive force towards the people of Israel. And he is sent, especially by God, to warn the people to say, turn around. You're walking in the wrong direction. 
And if you don't turn around, if you don't see that you're, you're moving in the wrong direction and move towards a place and a position of safety, I am here to tell you massive destruction is on its way. And you just have a, a little while until it arrives. And he's pleading with his people. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 8, 3, as we said, refers to one sermon. Scholars call it the temple sermon. Because this is a a sermon given directly to the church-going people. Jeremiah is instructed to go to the temple, go to the place where the people of God are gathering. And I want you to deliver this sermon not from the pulpit, I want you to deliver this sermon from the front doors. So I want you to encounter the people as they come into the door of the temple. And I want you to look at those people. And I want you to say on my my behalf, Jeremiah, say to them, the Lord sees you. He sees you coming into this temple. He sees how you have lived your life all week long. He, he sees that you've been spending your time serving yourself. You, you've been chasing after the gods of the culture, the gods of materialism, the gods of, of pleasure, the gods of self-importance all week long. Don't be deceived. D- don't be fooled, Jeremiah is telling his people. Don't be fooled that you can just walk into the temple, you can sing this praise chorus, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, and think that you're okay. You're not okay. You're in real danger. You're living in the shadow of it right now. And God has sent me to ask you, would you turn around? This morning, we're going to look at the second half of this temple sermon. And I want to look at it with, in three ways. First, I just want to re- review briefly what had gone wrong. Then I want us to hear and heed Jeremiah's warning. And then I want to consider God's wrath. So, so what had gone wrong Then let's hear and heed Jeremiah's warning, and then let's consider God's wrath. What went wrong? In the book by David McCullough, he, in retrospect, now pieces together a lot of different pieces of information and facts, and he details a number of problems that the dam had, that now in retrospect you can see very clearly that there were cracks and things that the people there should have, seen as obvious and warning signs that the dam was going to break. And in the sermon here, Jeremiah exposes the main crack with the people of Jerusalem, and that was duplicity. The main crack in the lives of the church-going people of Jeremiah's day was duplicity. Now, this may be hard for you to imagine, but this was what was happening in their time. They thought they could live with one foot in the temple and one foot in the world. They thought they could 
follow God with one half of their lives and then just follow the world or follow themselves with the other half of their lives. And so they're living these double lives, one way inside the temple, one way around the people of God, and then a different way in their mind and in their heart and in their week away from the temple. Verse 17 and 18 shows us what's happening. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children are gathering wood, the fathers kindle the fire, the women knead the dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. And then look down in verse 30 and 31. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom. And they are burning their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it even come into my mind. I want you to notice, just in review of what's gone wrong, the growing effect that sin has on the people. But when you look at verse 17 and 18, you see that the families are at home, they're worshiping idols at home, and the children are participating. Hey, you know, son, daughter, you go get the sticks, and I'll start building the fire, and the wife is over here kneading the dough, and we're all sort of participating in this family worship together away from the temple, but then you go to verse 30 and 31, and the idol has moved into the temple. We're, we're no longer worshiping the idol that's in our home. We brought the idol actually into the temple. And now as part of the worship, the children are not just participating. They're personally sacrificed. These people are bringing their own sons and daughters, the firstborn, into this valley that lies outside of Jerusalem, which in the New Testament was a kind of a garbage dump where they burned all kinds of refuse. And in that valley they had built an idol and they would come and they'd bring their firstborn and they would put the firstborn into the fire. And I think it's important to stop just for a moment, and I want to make these two comments. First is, I want you to be aware of the growing nature of sin in your life. The little thing that's at home, that's in your mind, that no one else really here can pick up on this morning, it's growing. It plans on consuming your entire life. And you may be fully convinced, I can keep that at bay. It's really not that big of a deal. I've got it under control. It's going to grow and it's going to consume your life unless you cut it out. That's the nature of sin. It's always expanding. It has its eyes on consuming your whole life. And secondly, specifically to the parents here, I want you to see that in this passage, the children 
Do not learn who or what you worship on Sunday mornings. Your children are not learning who or what you worship on Sunday mornings. I want to say that one more time. Your children are not learning about who or what you worship on Sunday mornings. They are learning about who or what you worship on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. That's when your children find out who or what you worship. Not here for an hour. Paul Tripp in his book on parenting, The Age of Opportunity, says this, If we are ever to be effective for Christ in the lives of our children, it is important to be honest about our own idols. Where are the places we have tended to exchange worship and service of the Creator for worship and service of created things? It's time for us to ask, what really rules our hearts? Surely every Christian parent would spontaneously give the correct theological answer, We are God's children. He rules our hearts. But does he? This is not about a theological affirmation, but about day-to-day worship at the level where the rubber meets the road, in your living room, kitchen, in your work habits. These are the places that display what really controls your heart. If, If God were looking at your life and your lifestyle as a parent. Who would he say you're training your kids to worship? Who or what would he say, this is what you're really helping your kids worship on Monday through Saturday? Is it possible you are actually sacrificing your own kids for your own goals? for your own comfort, for your own promotion. The crack in the lives of the people in Jerusalem was obvious. God really wasn't controlling their hearts. They were controlling their hearts, and just whenever God was convenient, they let Him in, and whenever they didn't want to do things for God, they just went on their own way. And they refused to see it, and God sent warnings. Let's read verse 23. But this I command and gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And they went backward instead of forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear. Persistently. Day after day. You know what that means in the Greek? Persistently. Day after day. 
God constantly sees that His people are, are moving in a different direction. And so persistently and day after day, He sends one servant and one prophet after another begging His people, please do you not see that you're walking in the wrong direction? Turn, repent, give your heart to God and walk in a di- new direction. Walk back towards Him. And he's doing it time and time again, like here with Jeremiah. But in verse 24, we find that they would rather walk in the counsel of their own wills. They just prefer saying, what's the best thing to do here? Yeah, I think I'm going to do that. Whatever seems to be working best for me, if that's God at this point, I'll take Him. If that's not really God at this point, that's okay. It's just really about me. I, I'm, I'm considering myself. I'm, I'm thinking within my own brain. And whatever comes out, that must be the right direction. And that's preparing them for disaster. God is persistently calling us to hear and heed His Word over and over and over again before the disaster comes and the people refuse to listen. In Johnstown, the water hit Johnstown about 4 o'clock in the afternoon on May the 31st. At around 1 o'clock, Two to three hours before the dam broke, a telegraph message was sent to Johnstown. South Fork Dam is liable to break. Notify the people of Johnstown to prepare for the worst. And this is what McCullough writes. The agent on duty, Frank Deckert, was told it had come in. He glanced at it. But he did not stop to read it. As he said later, I knew that it was in regard to the dam, that there was some danger of it breaking, but it created no alarm in my mind. In my mind, when I began to just reason by myself, and I wasn't considering the information that was coming from outside, in my mind it just didn't make sense because, you know, these kinds of rumors had swirled around before and it never happened. And even if it did happen, apparently the water is only going to rise two feet, not 36 feet. And so in my mind, when I got the message, it just didn't create an alarm. I just didn't feel like I needed to act on it right away. And so the message is ignored. I believe in the book he said, uh, Deckert showed it to a few other people and even one man laughed. Jeremiah is chosen by God to deliver a very clear message. If you're not walking in in my ways, if you're not being obedient to my word, if you're choosing to walk in the counsel of your own will, then you're in massive danger. It's on its way. I know you may not see it right now, but it's coming towards you. Please Turn around. But the people were not alarmed. They said it wouldn't happen to us. We have the temple. 
God wouldn't destroy that. God has chosen me today to present to you a very clear message. A message from His Word. The Bible clearly states, each man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. It it couldn't be any clearer. Everyone listening, everyone hearing my voice, each man and woman and child right here is destined to die one time. And at that death, they will face God's judgment. We're we're all living in this massive shadow of God's destructive judgment. And it's possible that you've heard this message before and it just didn't create any alarm. I mean, you're a young person. You've got lots of your life to live before I need to really make these kinds of decisions. It's, it's no big deal that I'm living this double life because a little bit later, when I'm sort of done with this side, I'll get back to God. I, I've got time. I'm, I'm not alarmed. It's, it's not creating any alarm in your mind. It's really not a big deal. But God says one day we will stand before this crushing torrent of God's wrath. And you will have to stand there by yourself and answer for every thought and for every word and for every deed. Comma. Praise the Lord, there is a comma after that statement and not a period. And the comma is the great news. You and I would stand there alone or we can choose to trust in the one person who can stand in front of the torrent of God's wrath, His judgment, and He can absorb all of it and deflect it away from you. And you can stand behind the cross totally free. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. You can stand before a holy God and you can stand with your shoulders up and your head held high, not because of you, but because of Christ. All of God's judgment rushing down onto the earth and absorbed at the cross by Jesus Christ. It is coming for every one of us. And you can either stand by yourself or you can stand behind the mercy and the sovereign grace of God Almighty. Jeremiah issues a warning to his people. I am issuing a warning to you. You have heard clearly the gospel Paul says it this way in Romans 3, For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy His own judgment against us. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed His blood, sacrificing His life for us. You're hearing the message. 
Are you ready? I'll never forget standing at the front door, sharing a little story with a little boy as he had his craft and he had his donut, talking to this six or seven year old boy, saying to him, I'll see you next week, and he died that week. Are you are you ready? The people didn't listen. Day after day, persistently, God is trying to call His people and they just, just refuse to listen. Verse 20. Therefore, because you're not listening, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place. Upon man, beast, trees, fruit of the ground, it will burn and not be quenched. Verse 32. Therefore, because the people are not listening, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will be, when it, when it will no more be called Topheth, which means fireplace, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will, verse 34, silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth or the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Jeremiah is sent to say, you're walking in the wrong direction. I'm just one in a long line of people who is looking at the people in the church, not the people in the culture. This is not a message to the people outside of these walls. It's the message for the people who are inside, in the temple, saying, I see, the Lord sees you're walking these double lives, and you must turn away from that. You must give your whole heart to God. And He's one in a long line, and they just refuse to listen. And after hundreds of years, God pours out His wrath. And if you refuse to listen, then one day it will be hell. And the reason I say hell from this particular passage is because this is really what Jeremiah is referring to when he says the valley of the son of Hinnom in verse 32. Jesus borrows this phrase, the son of Hinnom, brings it into the New Testament, and that's the word he uses for hell. So all of his Jewish listeners, when Jesus is preaching and he talks about hell, they're saying, oh, back there where the fire is burning and and people are consumed by fire. That's the picture they have. Mark 9.43 Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands than to go to Hinnom or to go to hell. And here's the description where the fire never goes out. 
Jeremiah and Jesus are describing the same thing. A life apart from God can be described as hell. Now, I know when I mention hell, all kinds of sort of question marks come up, either in our own minds or the kinds of questions that you might wrestle with with your neighbors or your friends about hell. And pretty often a question like this comes up. How can a God of love also be a God filled with wrath and anger? You ever heard this question? You have this question even in your own mind? I mean, if he's loving, then he shouldn't get angry. And so we live with this tension. Probably some of you are living in that tension saying, I just don't get it, Paul. You have this loving God. You're telling me he he loves me, but yet here you're describing something that seems so unloving. It, It just doesn't work together for me. Becky Pippert gives what I think is a good answer here. It's worth wrestling around with in a conversation, so if you have some more questions, I hope you'll email me or call. She says this in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. Think of how you feel when you see someone you love ravaged by unwise actions or another person. Think about how you feel when you see somebody that you really love who's ravaged Maybe by their own actions or by the actions of another person. How would that make you feel? Do you respond with benign tolerance? No, far from it, Pippert says. I have seen two talented friends, bright people, waste their lives on drugs. How did it make me feel? I was grieved and sickened to see the wasted potential, but I also felt fury. I wasn't angry because I hated them. I was angry because I cared for them. If I hadn't loved them, I could have walked away. But real love stands against the sin that destroys. People cannot be good and at the same time be indifferent to evil. You hear that? You cannot be a good person and indifferent to evil. If I watch someone or something ravaging my own little girl, and you watch me watching that happen, and if you looked at me and I went, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. You would not say that I'm loving, would you? You would say, Paul, you're a monster. No one could look at their daughter being ravaged and just act as if it's no big deal. You of all people should rush in there and have fury and anger because you love her. It is because God loves us that He acts this way. And so when we see this idea of God's wrath, when we understand this picture of hell, it tells us something about God. It tells us that we're important to God. It tells us that He loves us. We have tremendous value in the heart and the mind of God. He's not a monster. 
He's the ultimate lover. And he's furious when he watches his own creation destroy itself or destroy each other. And he's sending people in his word time and again saying, please turn around, go in a different direction. You cannot follow me and follow the world at the same time. He's not indifferent to the way you live your life. In the last chapter, McCullough writes this about the Johnstown flood. I found this fascinating. For years after the flood, there was much speculation on how many of the people listed among the unfound dead were actually very much alive. They estimated that over 700 people died that they just didn't know about. They just couldn't find them. The speculation seemed well justified. Eleven years later, in the summer of 1900, a man by the name of Leroy Temple showed up in town to confess that he had not died in the flood, but had been living quite happily in Beverly, Massachusetts. On the morning of June 1st, he crawled out of the wreckage. He looked around at what was left of Johnstown. He turned on his heels and he walked out of the valley. He looked at the wreckage. He turned on his heels. And he walked in a completely different direction. That step that he took is the step that some of you today need to take. Now, if you're here as a churchgoer, this is a sermon mainly for you. It's for people who come into church, but they're really living a double life. They really have another God or other gods that as soon as they get out, they're chasing those gods like, that's really going to provide for me. Today is the day to look at that wreckage and say, I will not follow that anymore. I am going to turn on my heels, I am going to trust in Christ, and I am going to walk out of that valley of death, and I am going to follow Christ into life. Some of you desperately need to turn on your heels away from that kind of living. There are probably a few of us here that are just wrestling with the whole idea of a relationship with Christ. And maybe this is the first time you've heard You live in the shadow of a massive, destructive flood. And that one day you'll have to stand before God Almighty. I'm begging you, do not stand by yourself. Please, stand behind the one person who has and can absorb all of your sins and divert it away from you, and give you eternal life. I'm going to let a song play, just a piece of music. 
We don't do this every week, but I'm going to allow you just to, to come up front for a moment if you feel like that's necessary. There's nothing magical about doing it, but there's something about this sermon about turning and saying, I, I really want and need to walk in a different direction. And sometimes just the act of walking up here and just standing or kneeling just helps solidify that thought in your mind between you and the Lord. So I want us to to take a few minutes here and, and to pray for one another and for you to pray to the Lord. And if it's helpful, please come up front. Let's pray. Lord, there's a massive reality of your existence that for, for many of us just goes unthought about. Because we've got our heads down on things that we think are really going to give us life. And, and we're your people. Above all, we, we are the ones who are supposed to be looking out ahead to, to the treasure in heaven, not, not to the treasures of this world. And I, so I pray for any of us here that are living this double life, that you would now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring conviction. And for those who live in the shadow of this loving right judgment that we would see Christ and His sovereign grace that abounds over any of our sin. Pray for Your work to be done now. Amen.